Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. This week we watched The Public, a 2018 drama written and directed by Emilio Estevez, who also stars in the lead role. It takes place in a large public library in Cincinnati where a group of homeless library patrons organise an overnight sit-in to protest the lack of facilities during a cold winter. And it's got a really impressive ensemble cast, including Michael K. Williams, Alec Baldwin, Christian Slater, Gina Malone, Jeffrey Wright, and Gabrielle Union. Uh, this is a Patreon request from our patron, Sydney. Thank you very much for sponsoring an episode. Um, and before we go any further, I do kind of feel like I need to apologise as well, because um, we must be true to ourselves and neither of us like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> which is always no. a risk you take on when you when you ask for a film most of the time we do but i i'm really sorry uh we did not like this one i love the concept of the film it is such a good idea and it's uh, some parts of it are stuff that i really wish i saw in other movies and yeah like the the fact that it recognizes the actual use of libraries for the most part especially in america i have a, a good friend who works in a library here in Britain and she has a lot of the same experiences where it's basically kind of one of the few public facilities that people can go to, um, you know, for information, but also just for shelter, which is kind of the primary theme of this movie. But in execution, we had some criticisms. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, I will also just, you know, verbally state my apology to Sydney, who was kind enough to sponsor this episode. I really didn't like this movie at all. I it maddened me. And I think part of what was so maddening about it is that obviously its intentions were in the right place, right? Like Emilio Estevez, as you said, like directed, wrote, and starred in this movie. It's a passion project of his. One might say a vanity project. I think that is a fair description of the Yeah, by the time you get about a third of the way through, I was kind of like, oh, Emilio Estevez is like the lead role in this ensemble cast. And about a third of the way through, I was like, oh, he's the lead role. And he has given himself some things to do in this film. Yes. We will get into that. But what's frustrating about it is that it is simultaneously really self-indulgent in a way that I found um, very frustrating and defensive, but also clearly is well-intentioned. Like, he's trying to make a political point that in a general sense, I think we both agree with. And, like, it's it's not a malicious movie. It's just so misguided that it doesn't work. I mean, I thought of The West Wing so many times during this film it's kind of, it's very obviously you can compare it to The West Wing, of which I have seen every episode. <laughs> but also, obviously, Emilio Estevez is the son of Martin Sheen, who is the star of The West Wing. And I was kind of thinking, like, what it's like to be the son of the guy who's the star of The West Wing. Like, obviously, Emilio Estevez is a very successful actor in his own right, but he is not, like, the top tier of Martin Sheen and he also doesn't have that singular role which has had such an impact on like pop culture and for those who are not super familiar with the West Wing you know it's set in the White House it's a political drama it it's set in the, it, it took place in the 90s and especially in recent years it has not aged well for a lot of its target audience it has a very forgiving style of liberal politics that's uh, kind of asking, can like the Democrats and the Republicans all get along? The answer is obviously no, but the show is like repeatedly saying yes. And, you know, it's a very centrist and also extremely schmaltzy drama, which kind of puts this sort of 
liberal, vaguely pro- progressive sort of American politics over the top of loads of sentimental scenes where they like wave the flag and you know weep over the a national anthem or do a rousing speech. And this is definitely kind of it's not like patriotic, but it's very much in the same wheelhouse of sort of do-gooder attitude and sentimental speeches and sort of a, a love of quoting things. There is a very significant quote towards the end where I was like, what's happening? Because the the film starts off pretty well. I was like, okay, this is like quite a, like it's quite a broad film, like introdu- the first third, you're like, okay, you've got some characters here who are slightly corny, but there's nothing wrong with that at all. So you have Emilio Estevez playing Stuart Goodson, who's sort of the main library character. And um, you meet his boss, who's played by Jeffrey Wright. And then you meet various homeless library library patrons who come in every day, basically, to take shelter. And really good intro, solid concept. And then kind of as the film wears on, you find out that several of these homeless library patrons are organising a set-in led by uh, Michael K. Williams, obviously iconic actor and you're like okay cool this is what the concept is and then it seems but soon becomes apparent that the film bears like absolutely no resemblance to real sit-ins real activism it really centers on the librarian character played by Emilio Estevez and like he kind of effectively takes over the sit-in but not as a picture not really particularly as a leader it's more like all of the people who are participating in the sit-in just expect him to be the guy who's in charge and I'm like these are all individual people with their own goals and a much more urgent attitude towards these goals than this guy who happens to work at the library and kind of sympathizes with them. Morgan, I will try not to completely just talk about this for half an hour. Why don't you jump in? (laughs) Well, I think, so you've described everything correctly, obviously, so far, but I think there are two ways the movie could have gone, right? One way is that you have homeless characters who have thought about this and are very proactively like we are staging a peaceful protest. Yeah. This is our this is our list of demands. This is how we are going to perform this action and they again they've like thought about it. It's thought through. It's organized. The other one is that like it's really fucking cold outside. Like someone has like a homeless person has died in front of the library the night before because it's so freezing, which is kind of what instigates this. And I think it's like, not unrealistic to set up a situation, which is kind of what happens in the movie, where, like, they're not that organized. Yeah. But they just don't, like, they're like, well, we can't go outside. Like, it's too cold. We're just not going to leave. Which is completely but, plausible and how this sort of thing unfolds all the time. I completely right. agree with you. But the movie doesn't actually investigate how that would unfold in a realistic way, right? Like, they all just kind of decide to stay in there. Again, like, that's plausible, that's fine. He and one of the other um, library staff members, who's played by Jenna Malone, who, like, we will get to that character. Oh, my God. Bad. Very bad. Very cringy. But, uh, so they decide to stay with them. And then Michael K. Williams is basically like, well, you got to convince the, like, police and, like, authority figures downstairs that we're not crazy because, like, they'll think you're not crazy. So, like, good luck. Ha, ha, ha. And they're all kind of, like, joking about it in a way that felt totally like a movie to me, right? Like, it just was such movie writing in a cheesy, absurd, and unrealistic way. And the he winds up in this position of authority, basically because the other guys are like, well, you have to be in charge now, as you said. And the dynamics of how this situation would unfold is just, there's nothing, there's, there's no resemblance to any real situation. And even that, 
setup. Like, I could see them being like, okay, well, like, you're an authority figure, so you make the first phone call. Like, fine. But it just doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, none of this makes any sense. He shouldn't be the protagonist of the movie. Like, no, like, just- the homeless characters have no agency, really, of their no. own. And the film doesn't really emphasize the sense of desperation that they have, which is, like, no. extremely easy to believe because the other option is literally freezing to death. So it's, like, very easy to engage with concept and it was genuinely confusing to watch kind of the first act of this film and see all these characters get introduced and realize that Michael K. Williams gets nothing to do and I was just watching this like he's Michael K. Williams surely he is at least the co-lead but he's just present as sort of I mean there's various characters who all have various kind of mental illnesses or are like struggling with addiction or something and he is kind of the de facto leader of several homeless characters who are in the movie but like he's not a leader leader he doesn't have any particular plan for this sit-in as Morgan and I both said and it was just really peculiar to see kind of an actor of that caliber who I would say is more recognizable than Emilio Estevez even oh yes 100% because like Emilio Estevez has been in a lot but he is just like he's just that guy he's a guy like his peak was in the 80s and he's been working steadily but he's not someone we have a strong opinion of whereas everyone who knows who Michael K. Williams is is like oh it's Michael K. Williams he's great (laughs) it was weird and like the racial dynamics in the movie are just like not really investigated in any way at all which was like a very West Wingish element as well but um so once this sit-in actually kind of gets going you then have a wider kind of conflict where they bring in this uh, crisis negotiator from the police department played by Alec Baldwin and this very stereotypical but very plausible slimeball asshole Republican uh, district attorney who's running for mayor and he's kind of running against another guy who's much nicer and so this becomes part of his mayoral campaign where he's just trying to seem like he's tough on crime and This was another one of these things where I was like, the concept is really solid because this leads to this sort of chaotic situation where Christian Slater is angling to blame this all on the librarian guy. And you can easily see how he could do that, A, so he can frame this into a hostage situation through inaccurate news reporting, B, find someone to blame specifically in a really simple way, and C, potentially use it to like defund libraries later on because he can be like, oh, look at these like bad libraries. But they don't really examine that. And the way they kind of execute it also doesn't make sense. And I think before Morgan watched the movie, we try not to spoil each other, but I was like so irritated by this one detail that I was messaging Morgan after I saw the movie, just being like, no one in this movie has a cell phone. (laughs) It was literally like the story had been written in the 90s and not updated since then. Because obviously a lot of people are using the library for internet, but like, a lot of those homeless protesters would have a cell phone. Like, it's a crucial piece of equipment for you to be able to keep in touch with your, like, friends and find information about shelters and that sort of thing. And it's something that's covered a great deal in mainstream reporting of homelessness because it's one of these things where, you know, people who don't know anything about the topic are like, well, if you can afford a cell phone, like, what's wrong? And it's like, Lots of people can afford a cell phone, which is a crucial part of, like, being a member of society in any way now. I mean, you can have a car and be sleeping in your car and have a cell phone and still be, like, millions of dollars in debt, you know? And 
in this film, the concept of like cell phones is just, he's just ignored it. There's no internet, there's no social media. And I think in reality, like this kind of sit-in would immediately get a lot of attention once it was on the news. But you would see kind of like local sort of social charities and also local activists would be getting involved. Like you would very quickly have like a little squad of potentially incompetent, but potentially very useful, like anarchists sitting outside helping. And you would have people talking about it on Twitter. And there's no social media in it at all, apart from towards the end where there's this woman played by Taylor Schilling, who is Emilio Estevez's somewhat implausible love interest, who's also his neighbour. And she kind of goes to the library to meet up with him. And she kind of gets on the phone with him and explains the concept of him like filming a video inside the sit-in to send to the news. And I was just like, what century are we in? You can post it online. It's a video. You don't need to like send the video to your friend who will then physically hand it to Gabriel Union, the, the TV <laughs> news reporter, who also I think Morgan hated uh, for a good reason. Gabriel Union, not a good role. <laughs> well, I mean, there's still more to say about the general treatment of homeless people in this movie, which obviously is the yes. whole theme of the film. But Let's sidebar for a moment and talk about the women in this film. So there are three of them. There's Jenna Malone playing the librarian, who I mentioned. There is Taylor Schilling, who is very improbably playing the building manager of the building where Emilio Estevez works and is this, like, very hot woman who, like, wants to sleep with him. I guess she could be a building manager, but she also, like, doesn't know how to repair things and somehow is wound up in this role. The building managers I have encountered in my life do not meet any of the qualifications of what I just said. Like, you have to, like, know what you're doing. And also, they're usually men, which doesn't mean it couldn't be a woman, but it so feels, again, like they were like, well, there has to be some lady who he wants to sleep with. So, like, how can we figure that out? Oh, I know. Like, let's just have her for some reason. I mean, it's such bad writing. It's just really was aggravating. And then the other woman is played by Gabrielle Union, and she's this news anchor who comes to cover this situation and she of course is like oh maybe it's an it's a you know shooter inside or it's a hostage situation and even when presented with the footage that proves that it's not she's like well it's a better story if he's like keeping them hostage which it isn't it's a better story if the cops are like lying and this mayoral yeah. candidate is lying to the people like it just showed like a really fundamental because like he was clearly trying to make a point about fake news in fact they literally used the fake news like buzzword at one point but it just showed a complete fundamental misunderstanding of like how that works because yes it's completely political right like the the idea of fake news is completely political like primarily it is in america right-wing news stations so if she is fully like a local fox news reporter she's probably still going to report the truth that it's a sit-in so she can demonize homeless people right because like the truth is going to come out very quickly and then if she's working for like a super evil channel, which is like the most plausible thing here is that she is someone who is working on like a mid-level local TV news station, which is like owned by an evil corporation. And that corporation's job is like, we're going to fabricate a bunch of garbage news to fuck up America. But she's probably someone who's gone to J school and like wants to report. So it would make more sense for her to get the right news and then broadcast it and then get like fucked up by her bosses. Right. But there's no engagement with the structure yeah. of the news channel. Which is so right? frustrating, like, right? Because it's like, it's a movie which is supposed to take place in the real world and be like an accessible but hard-hitting depiction of something that happens in real life. 
and it's completely uninformed about the vast majority of the elements around that real life event. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. And the Jenna Malone character is like the first conversation that she has. I mean, she's like a sitcom is. character from 1996 who wants to recycle and everyone's like, haha, recycling? Literally, she, he, she's like 30 seconds late to work, maybe. And he's like, that's because you took public transit. She's like, well, I want to reduce my carbon footprint. Like, you should take public transit and not drive, which clearly he should if they're living in Cincinnati proper. Like, obviously, everyone should be taking public transit to work if there's not some compelling reason. And he's like, well, no, you should drive so you can get to work on time. It's like, maybe she should take an earlier bus? Like, I don't understand this conversation at all. And he's, like, making fun of her for, like, eating vegan food or whatever. And then as soon as the protest starts and the cops show up, she freaks out because, like, she can't handle it. And he's like, well, this is your whole thing. And she's like, no, I can't deal with the cops. Which, like, I mean, if you're, like, sure, whatever. But what? Who is this woman? Like, I mean, it was literally, like, a caricature of, like, oh, actually, it turns out that, like, people who are into green activism are just, like, a bunch of pussies who don't know anything. And it was sort of yeah. maybe sort yeah. of champagne socialist idea. But it was like, sure, I can very much believe that this, like, 30-year-old librarian doesn't necessarily want to be, like, tear-gassed. But yes. it's pretty clear that she also probably deals with the police on a very regular basis because they're having to deal with like all these people who have very serious mental health issues and are hanging out in the library, like stripping their clothes off and having nervous breakdowns and like freezing to death outside. So it's like, yes. yeah, she probably talks to the police like on a monthly, if not weekly basis. You're right. So it was all very puzzling. But she thinks that Emilio Estevez is great, as does basically everyone. Because he can quote the Grapes of Wrath. Oh my god. It was so maddening. It was so maddening. I mean, again, like, when you've written and directed this movie and you create this character for yourself, it's just a little hard to take. Again, the, like, Vanity Project element, like, I normally don't like when people use that phrase because it just feels rude and often is directed at women, in fact. But in this case, like, that's clearly what's going on here, right? Like, Somehow he managed to get all these actors to be in this movie with him, and he's improbably the hero of this story. When, as you say, clearly Michael K. Williams should be the protagonist. And he's the only person in the movie who's giving a really good performance, I think. Some of the other actors are fine, but, like, the writing is just not I mean, not some of, of them are good that, actors like, who are actively giving a bad performance. Like, because Gina Malone is giving this cornball performance, and I'm like, Gina Malone's a good actor! <laughs> but she is horrible in this and I've liked her in other things but she I mean the writing is so bad that like it's not her fault but I was thinking watching it I was like okay so again and like she's been very good in other things I'm really not trying to be mean but she is atrocious in this and then you watch Michael K. Williams and I was like oh right that's the difference between an actor who's capable of being very good in something and like a great actor right because his dialogue is not very good either but he is magnetic in this movie and it's because he's basically incapable of being bad like you could give him pure garbage and he'd be like well i'll do what i can like and still be just like you can't take your eyes off of him and we were talking before we started recording a little bit about his career is just so frustrating because he's in a lot of not very good movies and he's been in a lot of hbo shows too like he's clearly one of the sort of repertory cast members of of HBO like they have a lot of actors who they just kind of circle circle around and like they'll just be in a lot of HBO projects they clearly have good relationships with creative talent but 
you know, post The Wire, his career is not what I think a lot of people would have hoped for. I mean, he plays like the third most important character in dozens of mediocre thrillers, which is not how the world should be. No. And obviously he has worked a lot, but I think he's sort of hit by the double whammy of like, Hollywood is extremely racist. And people who play unbelievably iconic characters on television, irrespective of demographics, often have a really hard time sort of with their careers after the fact. Like they might still be working, but in terms of like getting really good stuff, it's hard because people just see you as that person. And it's not that he's not super convincing in the other stuff he does, but he'll always just be Omar to some people and to some extent, like, that is his legacy. And if you look at the cast of Mad Men, like, Elizabeth Moss is basically the only person who has had the career that she kind of should have after that show. And they're all beautiful, incredibly talented white people. And, like, where are they? I mean, they're working, I guess, but it's just really hard when you're that embedded in the cultural imagination as, like, a particular person, right? Because yeah. John Hamm should have been Batman. Right. He should have been Ben Affleck's Batman. Yeah, but that didn't I mean, happen. I'm glad he wasn't in those movies. But no. like, what's he doing? I mean, he's doing stuff, but like, it's not great. And he's fucking John Hamm, right? So like, I do think it is really hard. But with Michael K. Williams, it's just very frustrating because every time I see him in something, I'm just like, oh my God, you are like one of the great American actors and you're doing this? Like, It's just like, oh my God. But watching him in this and the other actors playing the homeless characters, who I think all do like a perfectly good job yeah yeah the way they're depicted he gets a couple moments of real pathos but in general there's kind of this sense of like joviality among those characters right and it's the way the movie depicts them is kind of just in this like jokey way or they're like severely mentally ill and like really in trouble and not that they should all be like I'm just so depressed and miserable all the time and I can't tell a joke. Like, obviously, gallows humor is a thing, right? But it felt to me like the humor was kind of standing in for any serious engagement with them as characters or with, like, their real situation. Well, it's like we know, we learn some stuff about Jaina Malone's home life. We Alec Baldwin has, like, a subplot to do with his missing son, we obviously see Emilio Estevez at home and therefore we see Taylor Shetling at home as well because they're neighbours. But we don't go into the lives of any of the homeless characters outside of the library. They talk about stuff, but we don't see what their daily lives are like. We don't see like their perspective. It's just one of the many ways that like their perspectives just aren't respected at all by the film. Yes. It's basically the white saviour trope, but like instead of race, it's class. Right. Except it's both. Yeah. In this case. I mean, not all the homeless people are black, but a lot of them are. And obviously, okay, Williams is like the figurehead for that group, right? So, And also, it was kind of weird that like the the, the sit-in was like really specifically men. And I was like, I don't understand what, because like they introduce some women at the beginning, but only men participate in the protest. I was wondering if that was just because like he wanted to have this completely absurd finale. It was... I was, I was like, it was so difficult for me not to spoil this for Morgan because I was like, literally, what the fuck is happening? But like, the denouement at the end of the film is that instead of having a standoff with the police, all of the protesters strip off all their clothes and like sing this song 
and it's meant to be this really moving moment and it's just like it just feels completely it just feels like the film has completely gone off the rails but I was like did you just like get rid of all of the homeless women so that you could just have a scene where it's all naked men because you can't have it naked if they're co-ed because where have the women gone like you know I think statistically there are more homeless men than women but what why did this like there was no explanation for why it kind of like panned out this way and also the song thing was like really confusing to me because it wasn't like that famous a song they wouldn't all know the words <laughs> it was like right. some song where I was like oh, I've heard this but I don't really know it so I googled it afterwards and apparently what happened is um Emilio Estevez really wanted uh to get the rights for Journey's Don't Stop Believing," but Journey was like we're not letting you have the rights <laughs> oh my god I mean good for Journey I mean Correct it would have been excruciating but like oh yeah, well, that's kind of, I mean, the thing, when that happened at the end, I was just like, I want to die. Like, this is just, no, no, no. But that's kind of the problem with the screenplay on a structural level, which obviously ties into all these thematic problems that we're talking about. But just approaching it, again, from a, like, storytelling perspective, it so feels like he's kind of come up with these moments where there's, like, a twist or something dramatic happens or like he's come up with an image in his head and he thinks, well, that will really shock the audience or like shock people in the movie. And instead of coming up with like characters who have real problems and then coming up with a story that sort of comes from those characters, he's totally reverse engineered the whole thing from these sort of like shocker moments. Like, I mean, you know, it, he it just definitely felt to me like a case of screenwriter textbookitis. Like it felt like you'd yeah. read a book about or you need to introduce like a thing and then have it come back later, which is very much a West Wing thing. That was one of the key West Wing elements of this because like they introduce the Grapes of Wrath earlier on and then he quotes it at excruciating length on live TV later on. And I was just like, this is just going to be confusing to the people who watch TV. Like if you have to share a message with an audience you say in very simple terms, the reason why these people are occupying the library is because the other option is they freeze to death. But instead of saying that, he quotes like a paragraph of the Grapes of Wrath. And we're meant from to memory. be like really impressed. Yeah, from memory. And it's like, what kind of like West Wing nonsense bullshit is this? And it came out in 2018, at which point the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 had not reached such a high level. But it was very much a mainstream part of the discourse and people who are like clued into politics at least understand the basics of how to transmit a message to the public, which this was the opposite of. Yes. And then the news anchor, Gabrielle Union, is just like, what the fuck is he saying? And <laughs> Jenna Malone and Taylor Schilling are like, um, obviously that's the greatest of wrath. And if you don't know that, then you are not qualified to report the news. And I was just like, what? Like, I haven't read The Grapes of Wrath, and I have a master's degree in English literature. Like, I don't think that this news reporter is, like, disqual- I mean, she sucks, but, like, that's not the reason why she shouldn't be reporting the news. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Also, an iconic example of literary plagiarism, so... <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's also, like, The Grapes of Wrath is obviously about poverty and the Dust Bowl, and, like... This, this big American story. And there, if he wanted to use it in the movie, there's totally a way where he could have been like, oh, like yeah. in the book, The Grapes of Wrath. Like, remember that book where this happened? And Nick quote three sentences, if you must, right? But it's just like, let me just quote this whole paragraph without context. As though he thinks every single person in the audience 
has also read The Grapes of Wrath recently enough to remember all of it. I've seen the film The Grapes of Wrath, which I recommend. It's great. I have not read it. And the whole movie, he talks about how much he loves books and books. He had previously had a drug problem and was living on the streets and like going to the library and reading books sort of like helped him recover. But he goes on and on about how much he loves books. And there's no sense in the movie of like books, except for this one thing where he like quotes The Grapes of Wrath from memory. Not that this movie has to have a bunch of people like having conversations about Shakespeare or whatever, but it just doesn't convey any sense of that side of the library, which like I didn't particularly care about. Like the library, as you said, serves so many sort of societal functions today that were not kind of the original intention. And that's obviously also really important. And it is refreshing to see this movie address that too. But it just felt like this bizarre kind of like sideways thing that he was also trying to shove in to be like, also literature, like remember? Well, I found it very telling that when they introduced The Grapes of Wrath, it's in a conversation between Emilio Estevez and, and Jenna Malone. And Jenna Malone is talking about how she loved old Johnny Steinbeck when she was in eighth grade or something. And I'm like, right. She had a crush on him. Right. In fact. And, but like what that illustrated to me was that Emilio Estevez read John Steinbeck in eighth grade and doesn't actually care very much about books at all and has no. internalized the idea of liking John Steinbeck as something that fits in with a sort of liberal intellectual viewpoint of this film. But like yeah. if he actually had an interest in books, it would come across in the film. Yes, he clearly does not. I mean, that's my inference but um i mean if this film like in general like as i said it's good that that's the this is recognizing the true function of many public libraries but like if he was more familiar with like what people are using the library for there'd be a lot more references to like twilight (laughs) like everyone is going in there to borrow like 14 books for their three-year-old to read over the course of one weekend or they're going in to get like a copy of the da vinci code And then there's the people who have like the weird academic requests. Yes, it's just, it's just not very good. (laughs) Great concept per execution. Well, it just really emphasizes the dangers of coming up with something like this when you have not done your research. I mean, it also illustrates the dangers of like not having friends. Because (laughs) if if Emilio Estevez (laughs) was not so isolated in whatever ivory tower he is living in while also trying to do a movie that's the literal opposite of an ivory tower this wouldn't have happened and it definitely struck me as kind of a bit of so so this i'm not saying man child because it's a very different phenomenon but like a middle-aged but immature man right and i think leonardo dicaprio is a fantastic example of the middle-aged but immature man because that guy is a fucking boring like 45 year old guy who just wants to like attend a boring ass lecture about like eco-friendly fuels or something but he is also like a horny baby who dates 18 year olds and Emilio Estevez is someone who like is primarily like his most famous period was in the 80s when he was a member of the Brat Pack and he was you know a horny idiot teenager who got wasted but like that's kind of his public image and since then he's like become very serious clearly and is much more mature But the end result is this movie, which is simultaneously like a movie for liberal dads and is also like very childish in its outlook. Yes. And the end of the film, what was the result? What was the result of the sit-in? They all go to jail, right? Like, 
what has been accomplished here. It's and it's so... not rep- it's not presented as like a negative outcome either. No. It's sort of an upbeat ending, but it's like your sit-in lasted for like less than half a night and you all ended up naked and arrested. So what was the I, it was ve- it was just what is yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's less like I mean, we, we know nothing about Amelia Estevez's personal life, but it strikes me less as like no friends and more like the wrong friends, right? Because yeah. I feel like to get these people in this movie, oh no, favors yeah. I'm were, sure he has many in. friends and connections, but like he doesn't, yeah, like you said, not the friends who would tell him to stop it. Right. Because like, how does Alec Baldwin wind up in this film? I assume they're buddies or he's buddies with somebody. Like that strikes me. Because Alec Baldwin... Mostly just, like, hangs out doing his radio show now. Like, he's not acting that much, really, anymore. But he's in this film doing, like, a dramatic role, which also he doesn't do very much anymore, and is not particularly convincing in in this Well, I can't movie. think of him as anyone other than Alec Baldwin now. Well, it's the similar thing to Michael K. Williams in terms... I mean, that is not actually true, because he's Michael like K. Williams... He's, like, untalented Michael K. Williams. <laughs> well... What it is, is like Michael K. Williams, you watch him and you're not, like, I certainly am not thinking about The Wire watching him in this movie, but I think just like the pub, his public sort of career is definitely dogged by that show. Whereas Alec Baldwin gave one of the best performances in American television history on 30 Rock. Like, his performance on that show is titanic. And as a result, he is Jack Donaghy forever. Like, I watch this and he's being really serious and I'm just like, that's Jack Donaghy. Like you're also, saying, he's things, got his it's little like, pout, and but I think it's because when he's playing Jack Donaghy, he is playing alarmingly close to Alec Baldwin. Yes, but it's still definitely a performance. Like it's the comic timing of that performance is genius. But like the way he says certain things, it's it's not like he's doing an accent or whatever. Yeah. Like it's close enough to him that when you watch this, you're like, oh no, it's still in there. Like and you, it's impossible for me to take him seriously because like. He had his one great role, and obviously he had this long career before that, which is different from someone like John Hamm or Michael K. Williams, who like emerge as these, like, oh my god, here's this guy, right? But it still, I think, was career-defining for Alec Baldwin to be on that show for that long. And I think he kind of knows. And so it's really hard to take him seriously in this, but I kind of suspect he must just be friends with someone who's involved, whether it's Estevez or a producer or something. And, like, as you said, basically everyone in this movie is famous. Jeffrey Wright is in this film, too. He's also very famous and doesn't act a ton. So I'm imagining a scenario where he, where Emilio Estevez recruits for this film. And I think I've hit the nail on the head here. He went with a series of business cards and scripts to a Pete Buttigieg fundraising dinner in Hollywood. (laughs) And that's how he got this collection of individuals. Well, uh, I think that's that timeline doesn't work, but I spiritually understand <laughs> what you're getting at. Yeah, the Pete Buttigieg fundraiser is where you find, I would say, everyone aside from Michael K. Williams in this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And obviously, like, this kind of thing can be done, right? Like, the person I was thinking of a lot watching... This movie was Sean Baker, who made Tangerine oh my God, and yes. The Florida Project. Yes. And other earlier films, which I have not seen yet, although at some point I will see them. But they were like tiny, tiny indies as opposed to indies that got attention on Twitter. And he is a straight white guy who is just like an unbelievably empathetic person. Um, I obviously don't know him, but I saw him do a talk at MoMA and I was just like, oh, 
oh yes, like you you are actually that person. Like he's just so obviously so nice. And he really embeds himself in the communities he's going to make movies about and I think really collaborates with the people he's working with in a sort of non-egotistical way. So like Tangerine is about two black trans sex workers and he obviously had black trans actresses playing those roles and I think like he obviously directed the movie but I think he really involved them in the creative process to make sure that the story felt right and like you would never guess who had directed that film based on watching it like it just feels so electric and alive. Actually I would like to say just here I would like to clear up a piece of actual fake news, which some of our listeners may have seen in passing a few months ago, which is that Sean Baker was making a movie about sex workers specifically through OnlyFans with Bella Thorne. And that's why Bella Thorne went on OnlyFans and basically fucked up this platform, ruining a bunch of people's livelihoods. Uh, That is not what happened. So Bella Thorne, 100% guilty. And also OnlyFans was using the Bella Thorne scandal to fuck over a lot of people who worked on that platform. However, Sean Baker did not ask her to do that. They were like discussing her being in a film with him and he said, can you research this topic in like an ethical manner that respects sex workers? And what she did was the opposite of that. So just to defend Sean Baker's element in that uh, situation. Yes, I was really aggravated by that because I respect him so much and I was just like, don't break his day into this. Yes. And he's obviously like an extraordinary person, right? But art is about being empathetic. And I think it seems clear to me that he feels that his purpose is to sort of tell the stories of these people who don't really have the capacity to do that themselves and on the level that he does in terms of his platform. And obviously, like homeless people, like not everyone is homeless forever. And some people who have been in that situation can later have the ability to tell their own stories. But obviously, a lot of people in that position really don't have any power or voice. So like, if you feel compelled as an artist to tell that story, that can be very powerful, but you have to actually know what the fuck you're doing and be really empathetic and listen to people, right? And it would be a very difficult task, but it's not like it's impossible. But in this case, it's like, obviously, he cares about this issue, Estevez, but like, it just, it's all coming from inside his head, as opposed to really listening to people and their experiences. And like, maybe he did talk to some people, but if he did, it clearly didn't stick. And so you wind up with this movie that again, like the intentions are obviously good, but the end product feels just like a kind of narcissistic project for him about like this heroic character whom he plays, as opposed to really trying to delve into the experiences that these people are having that are really difficult. And just as unfortunate that that's the case, right? Like, because we don't pay much attention to these stories. So like, there is an opportunity here to do that. And this movie doesn't get that done. Do you have any final, final words on the public? Uh, No, I don't believe so. I think basically what this podcast has been about is how we would remake the public and it wouldn't be us to be remaking it, but we have ideas on how it should be remade by someone who knows what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I hope Michael K. Williams gets better roles in the future. Um, apologies again to Sydney yeah. for this episode. This is this is the meanest. <laughs> this is the meanest Patreon request we've ever done. I think. 
pretty yeah. pretty critical of the film request. Uh, this is pretty rare, but sometimes it does happen, <laughs> and listeners must be prepared for that outcome. Yes, um, it is what it is. We we have to give our our honest opinions. Um, we do really appreciate you sponsoring this episode. We we really do. It it is what it is. As I and said. it was interesting to talk about. Yes. What can you do? If you would like to, you know, spin the roulette wheel, as it were, and see how we feel about one of your favorite films, um, you can do that on Patreon as well. We recently posted a commentary track for the first Lord of the Rings film, and we'll have the second one up in the next few weeks. So that is available there as well. Um, So next week we are going to be doing a very special bumper episode about the London and New York film festivals, which we have both been attending remotely. So we have lots of new and intriguing releases to discuss. Yes, including um, Nomadland, which you haven't seen yet, right? No, I haven't. The way they're doing the press screenings in London is they're doing a ballot for Nomadland. So you're allowed to watch any film aside from Nomadland where they are doing a ballot to reduce the number of people who see this film for some reason. Who can say? Who can say why film festivals do anything? So I guess I'll find out next week whether I'm watching that. I have watched a few films so far. I've seen Regina King's directorial debut, uh, One Night in Miami, which is very interesting, and the new um, Irish animated film by the people who did The Book of Kells. Lots of films to talk about. Yes, we'll be talking about the new Steve McQueen movies. I asked about Nomadland because it's about um, itinerant people living out of vans and cars with no homes, which I didn't love it. I liked it. I didn't think it was... I liked it less than basically everyone else, I think. This is like the most acclaimed movie of the year, so I'm expecting to like it. (laughs) It definitely handles this region of subject matter better. So I hope you get to see it because it'll be interesting to talk about kind of in relation to this film. Yeah, there will be a fair number of movies and I think at least a few that we both will have seen, which will be good because obviously this year of festivals are a little bit dicey yeah we're both seeing the steve mcqueens that are available yes and the christian petzolt film undine which is a german movie about a mermaid or something i'm watching it tonight i haven't seen it yet um but i love christian petzolt so i'm looking forward to it uh yeah so lots of movies to talk about next week that should be really fun and more lord of the rings and other stuff coming down the road after that (gasps) battlestar galactica miniseries coming up (laughs) yes Another patron request. So. Yes, an old fave of mine as a teenager. I was obsessed, and we will find out whether it's one of those things that uh, Morgan hates or loves. So yes, can't wait. <laughs> yeah. So thanks to all of you guys, Gavia. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find my work, including London Film Festival reviews, at the Daily Dot. And you can find me on Twitter at MLDavies and on Letterboxd. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at MLDavies. You can find the podcast on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.